and welcome to SusUkraineWorld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolko. I'm editor-in-chief of UkraineWorld.org, and this is our podcast Explaining Ukraine. Today we'll be talking about Ukrainian democracy, how it is similar or different to other democracies of the world, and what is changing in recent years. My guest today is Emily Channel Justice, director of uh, Temerte Contemporary Ukraine Program at Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. Good afternoon. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much for joining this podcast. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Ukrainian democracy. You recently had a conference about Ukrainian democracy at Harvard University. What do you think when you think about Ukrainian democracy, when Ukrainian democratic experience, in which way it is different and in which way it is similar probably to, for example, to its neighbors, Central and Eastern Europe countries like Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Baltic states? Well, I think in terms of its its neighbors immediately to its east, it's different simply by being a democracy and not a not an authoritarian regime and not even a hybrid authoritarian regime, I would say, although it certainly has plenty of issues that it's still working out, which we can talk about more. You know, in terms of, of Central European countries, this is an interesting question because on the one hand, those countries were not directly part of the Soviet Union. The influence of the Soviet sphere is a little bit different than in Ukraine, which of course was the second Soviet Republic. It was it was one of the most essential states or republics of the Soviet Union. And so that has influenced the development of democracy in Ukraine versus that, for example, of Poland or Czech Republic and Hungary as well, which I think is another interesting case given and given the the regressions that are happening in some of these places like Hungary and Poland. I think, you know, Ukraine has been compared, Ukraine's democracy has been compared to Poland's, for instance, for a long time, partly because of the successful economic development of Poland after it joined the European Union. You know, Ukraine doesn't have the same benefit of the the amount of, of investment that happened in those countries that were that gained European accession. And Europe's commitment to Ukraine has been, I would say, complex. On the one hand, we see a lot of aid coming from Europe, and we've been seeing lately the the withholding of aid in response to a lack of democratic development, to a so-called regression in Ukraine and the judicial sphere. So, you know, Ukraine is, we talk a lot about Ukraine being pulled in two different directions, Europe versus Russia. We've seen that most people want Ukraine to be part of Europe, But at the same time, you know, European support for Ukrainian democracy isn't always so secure. And so Ukraine's democratic institutions are often left kind of on their own. And that has, I think, presented a lot of difficulty for Ukrainian democracy. One of the key, really key things about Ukrainian democracy that we always have to to keep in mind is in 1991, the independence referendum Every oblast and the Autonomous Republic of Crimea voted for Ukraine's independence. And so when Ukraine was initially establishing its independence and its democracy, everybody bought into the idea. And that should be, I think, a key underlying thing when we think about Ukrainian democracy, you know, is that the whole country has been committed to Ukrainian democracy. And that's really a fundamental factor. Right. And it's very interesting indeed when we thought, think about, for example, 91. Uh, this year we will be celebrating 30 years of Ukrainian independence. So it's a, it's a very good moment to think about, you know, these 30 years. But let me come back to this uh, story of Central and Eastern Europe. When we compare it, Ukraine with Poland, for example, the like t- some 10 7 years ago it was a, a a starting point of any discussion when people said look ukraine and poland or ukraine and hungary had 
a similar starting point, but then they like rushed into very different directions and Poland was much more successful, etc. Well, for me, it is it is a mistake to say like this because they, they did not have a same starting point. First, as you rightly said, uh, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union with all the consequences and Poland and Hungary did not. And second, it seemed to me that, for example, the Western influences, economic and Western even capital, entered Central and Eastern Europe uh, much faster, whereas Ukraine, Russia, Belarus were captured by this, you know, by probably this mixture of uh, party nomenclatura and uh, the new criminal elites. What do you think? I absolutely agree with you. And I think that one of the things that we have to look at here. And one of the things that I think will actually be interest for people who study Ukrainian democracy and democracy in the region is how institutions developed in Ukraine after the end of the Soviet Union. So we can see kind of how in the 1990s, certain people who had power during the Soviet period, those people found ways to profit both politically and financially in the 1990s. Those people continue to hold power, I think we're maybe just now starting to see the end of that stranglehold on power among the former elites that also had you know, elite status during the Soviet period. But those are the people who created Ukraine's institutions. So when we think about how Ukraine's democracy is developing and why it's, it's not technically comparable with that of Poland or Hungary, you know, I don't even know if that kind of comparison is helpful um, because its institutions just work differently. And so while we're thinking about how Ukrainian democracy is being built, we really have to think about how power was distributed in in the 90s and how people who held power then created the framework for taking power now. And we have to really think about how hard it is to break that trajectory. Young people, younger people who are entering into the government now you know, how they relate to the oligarchic structures of power, how they relate to the typical practices of treating political loyalty as more important than reforms. Those are things that are really emblematic in Ukrainian democracy and really create a lot of problems and and I think need to be addressed. It's very interesting that you mentioned that there is, you know, these younger people who probably have this different perception of the reality. Uh, I have per- uh, personally, I'm living in Ukraine and I have personally an impression that there is something going on in this generation change. And uh, even with this government, with the actual government of Mr. Zelensky, well, there, are, there, there can be many different attitudes to, to him and to his administration. But the clear thing is that he is not, uh, he, he might be some uh, in some way dependent on oligarchs. We understand who we mean, for example. But uh, his way of doing business and his way of being a successful businessman in the entertainment sector of the 90s, 2000s, well, there were, it was another type of business than just oligarchic business, which was uh, essentially rent-seeking in, uh, in the 90s, for example. So do you have the impression that there is a gradual change of elites? We, we see, for example, many new businesses coming up uh, so, and who are challenging the oligarchic businesses, and these businesses are really grassroots Ukrainian businesses with very interesting you know, models. I think I'll answer your question optimistically today. And, and I go back and forth because some days, you know, it really feels like the Zelensky administration is not doing anything to make the changes that they could make. But in a lot of ways, I do think it's it's a little bit 
a step toward some reform, you know, whether or not or or the extent to which there's oligarchic influence in the Zelensky government, I think, is also under scrutiny right now. But there are there have been some new faces. There have been some some younger folks who didn't come up through the oligarchic political power structure. They're not members of families of, of oligarchs. You know, we're seeing right now Zelensky's struggle with the influence of Medvedchuk and TV propaganda. You know, that struggle, I think, is showing that there at least is interest and intent behind, you know, splitting off of, of some of this oligarchic power. You know, how well that works will tell us how far away we are from getting out of the the sphere of influence of oligarchs. But I really, I really do think that some of the people who have been in power in the Zelensky administration, some of the people who continue to to have access to power now, there really is step forward in in some of the reforms that have happened. It's really difficult to say whether there will be backlash to this. That's something that we often see in democracies. As soon as we start to make progressive changes, we get backlash from many people in society, both political elites and and, and civil society who wish to roll back those reforms. But I do I do think there's cause cause for optimism in this case. And I, I hope that you're right that the development of some of these new business sectors, and I think one of the examples we can look at is the development of the IT sector in Ukraine, which has been hugely beneficial financially for not only in Ukraine and not only for kind of the creation and restoration of a middle class, but also in bringing Ukraine into the Western world, U.S. companies, European companies who work with these Ukrainian IT workers and who, from my my very small amount of research on this topic, who have a, a absolutely positive impression of Ukrainian talent in the sphere of information technology. So I think, you know, looking at spheres like this in terms of economic development is really going to benefit Ukraine in the long term. Right. It's not only IT. We can talk about restaurant business, which is booming. We can talk about, for example, e-commerce, which is very interesting how Ukrainian economy is responding to this um, lockdown, to the COVID lockdown and developing its very successful e-commerce projects. But let me ask, you mentioned oligarchs, and of course oligarchs is always, you know, the word which is an elephant in the room and, uh, and, and you know, this image of the bad guys who are ruling the country, and of course it's partially true. But can we look at oligarchic this structure as kind of another type of Ukrainian pluralism, which is one of the intrinsic feature of Ukrainian political culture, if we compare it, for, the, for example, with the Russian one. So, yeah, there are oligarchs, but there are several oligarchs, and uh, they're struggling between each other, and at least they guarantee that, well, they, they can be obstacle to reforms, of course, but at least they guarantee that nobody will take the monopoly of power. What do you think? That's a very interesting way of looking at what is typically considered to be a problem in Ukraine. And I, I remember when I was doing my research in 2013 and 2014 during the Euromaidan protests, I went to a, a lecture at the, the free university that was being held there about good oligarchs versus bad oligarchs. And it had never occurred to me before to even consider that oligarchs could be good. And so that kind of aligns with with the idea of, of oligarchs creating pluralism. And I mean, I think the issue for me in this framework is, I, I don't think that you're wrong, right? Yes. And we saw after Euromaidan also that oligarchs started to, you know, invest in things that benefited 
Ukraine. And, and the, the best example I can think of is Ihor Kolomoisky's um, investment in, in Dnipropetrovsk at the time was was uh, the name of the city. And in, in investing in military, you know, oligarchs, for whatever reason, found that it would be beneficial to them to make those investments into what was considered kind of pro-Ukrainian developments. I think the issue for me is just the, the hold that these people still have on the political structure. And so while oligarchic pluralism creates some competition economically and some competition politically, it still limits the kind of political access that people have. So it still means that you have to have access to, to large amounts of money in order to gain, you know, political power. And so on the one hand, you know, it does prevent any kind of authoritarian, I think, you know, cr- structure like we see in Russia, for instance, where, you know, Putin, Putin's influence over the oligarchs leads to a consolidation of his own power. It prevents that, but it doesn't distribute power more equally among different kinds of people in Ukraine. And that's something that I think is a longer term issue that Ukraine needs to work out. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's interesting to see how, for example, the recent developments like the decentralization reform will change the situation because on the one hand, they the decentralization reform makes this uh, threshold of entering politics or at least local politics much lower. So we see lots of cases when, when people, good people, they even chose, you know, some oligarchic parties, but they are good people because they, they choose this, you know, uh, kind of framework to enter politics and they can be changing it from within. But on the other hand, we can see the growing influence of these local mini oligarchs, regional oligarchs. So the, the structure of Ukrainian politics becomes more and more complex. And, for example, it can look absolutely different in Kherson Oblast, and in Mykolaiv Oblast, which is, you know, which is neighboring. But let me ask uh, you, well, continue this story of comparing Ukrainian democracy to other democracies of the world. And uh, think about the Western Europe, the old Europe, so-called. Think about France, Germany, Britain, Spain, etc. And of course, we can talk about, you know, the, 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 longest, the longer history of democracies in, in these countries. But on the other hand, I was listening at, at one point recently a lecture by Timothy Snyder who was saying, look, we tend to see, we tend to look at these Western democracies as nation state, whereas they have been empires throughout their very multi-century history. And they uh, started making the European Union precisely at the moment when they were ceasing to be empires. So Ukrainian experience is, is much more different because it has never been an empire, it was a part of an empire, and it is trying, it's a very unique experience right now. It is trying to build a multicultural and multi-ethnic state and at the same time, a nation state. It's a very paradox experience, probably unique experience. So do you think this difference is, is interesting and also to understand the difference between these countries? Yeah, I really do. And I and I think the one thing I would add here is that Ukraine is really somewhere in between those, the building of the Western democracy style and actually the post-colonial states that were part of the empires of those Western European nation states. I mean, I've started to look at at this, I've thought about it for a long time, but I'm really starting to look at it in earnest now. Thinking about Ukraine as a post-colonial country, what does that mean? And, And what can we learn from the countries that built 
both civic and and national states after colonialism ended because we see in a lot of those those countries in in the British and, and French empires for instance the the same kind of ethnic and religious diversity that we have in Ukraine some of those countries have become successful democracies and some of them haven't and that's maybe a good lesson for Ukraine because what we you know there's nothing inherently democratic about any country. Borders are, are all arbitrary. You know, these things are completely built up by the people who are invested in them. And we have to hold those people accountable to, to, to building those democracies in the right way, right? Um, and so Ukraine can really learn not just from the countries that it aspires to be in conversation with, like those Western European democracies, but the countries that have a more recent experience of building democracy that includes lots of pluralistic voices, both politically and ethnically and culturally and in terms of religion there's a i think ukraine needs to be part of that conversation and and i think part of the issue to go back to the conversation about central and eastern europe you know the expectation was that those countries would aspire to become like western european democracies and that has led to the possibility of backsliding because the assumption is yes this is the model this is the model that works here's how you do it okay now you're part of the european union that's the end of the story that's not the end of the story actually there's a lot of different models of governance around the world and and people assess them differently and so in order to make sure that ukraine stays democratic uh i i I don't think we should assume that it will inherently become a democracy like the western democracies that have existed relatively unchanged for many, many decades and sometimes centuries, we have to look at more recent examples of democracy building to make sure that we build the institutions properly, I think. And one important aspect in this post-colonial perspective, which is also very interesting, is that, well, we can talk about post-colonialism in Ukrainian case, but we cannot talk about post-colonialism in the Russian case because Russia still aspires to rebuild its empire. And if you look at how Russian propaganda was reacting to the Black Lives Matter movement, it was precisely an idea that, look, uh, Western post-colonialism failed and... uh, the very, the very idea that you give freedom to all those, you know, colonized nations, colonized uh, societies is, is a bad idea. It's not a path to follow. So we, we should keep our empire, at least the, the, the last point. So, and it's very interesting how Ukraine is trying to build this post-colonial uh, society, whereas Russia is not trying to build it, right? Yes, I think um, this is a cautionary tale of sorts. I mean, we know that in since 2014 there has been russian rhetoric about the new russian empire that very much includes ukraine as part of that empire ukraine as i mentioned earlier was the the second most important soviet republic and to some extent the idea of a new russian empire continues to see ukraine in that way and so the level of success that russia will have i think is something to keep in mind i, I don't think that most ukrainians want to be part of a new Russian empire. That's really not my sense at all. And so, you know, thinking about a kind of post-colonial shift in which those people have access to power through democracy, right, through voting, through electing their representatives is really essential. And and here I think it's also really important to think about the role, you know, we talk about this all the time when we talk about Ukraine, the role of Russian media, sometimes disinformation, sometimes propaganda campaigns, these, these things do infiltrate in Ukraine and how people understand their relationship to Russia is influenced by Russian narratives. And that's really important because 
media can also help people understand themselves as as citizens, as people who are participating in the democracy building process in Ukraine. And the more people feel empowered by those narratives to to really invest in Ukraine, the easier it will be, I think, to shut down Russian narratives and shut down Russia's new empire building project. You mentioned already this Medvedchuk topic. So let me ask, what is your attitude? So the way Uh, that Zelensky decided to impose sanctions on these three TV channels linked to Medvedchuk and we assume to Mr. Putin and in particular on the member of parliament who is connected to, to this TV channel. Is that a right move? Is that a legitimate decision? I can see a couple of, of sides. On the one hand, I've seen people call it kind of an authoritarian move, which I understand, you know, that it is to some extent although i'm not i'm not sure that it's necessarily different from a us president style executive order so maybe it isn't so authoritarian at all you know i think i think it's it's an important move to some extent because zelensky has been in a position of late of being strongly criticized especially about the constitutional court crisis and especially about his failures to implement judicial reform i think he saw an opportunity to make an important move that would kind of encourage people to reassess his commitment to reforms i think this was an interesting choice for him to make at the same time you know and and i do think it is a, it does open up a slippery slope in terms of censorship and You know, if a channel is just pro-Russian, do you shut it down? Is this really about sanctioning a member of parliament? Is it really about attacking Medvedchuk? You know, it has obviously already opened up the floodgates for people to sort of say, well, this channel is pro-Russian, we should shut them down as well. We don't want to hear any pro-Russian narratives. That's not good for democracy or for pluralism. But at the same time, you know, we we know that there are sinister motivations in what these channels are doing, right? We know that they have an intent to spread misinformation so that people will support a pro-Russian opposition bloc. They benefit oligarchs. They benefit, even if ultimately we find out that these people aren't connected or these channels aren't connected to Putin himself, they still benefit Putin's project and his politics. So, you know, I think it's a really tough thing to assess, especially now. I think we might look back at it differently in a couple of years. It's either a you know, a move toward a, a backsliding and an authoritarian shift in the Zelensky administration, or it's the first step to really cracking down and sanctioning the people in Ukraine who are trying to further Russian interests. And that could be a good thing. I, I don't want to say definitively that it is a good thing, but I think it has the potential to be a good move. I think with this, we entering a very complex discussion, which is a discussion about the balance between freedom and security. So how can we secure freedom how can we how can we pursue a securitizing discourse in a liberal democracy so we can we can we we should defend the democracy we should defend liberal democracy against those uh, structures states people who are using the flaws the gaps of democracy against itself but to which extent we can move and here it's interesting that for example the ban of Twitter account of Mr. Trump, so American development and global development, I think that was a game changer. That was a game changer which uh, which also changed the discourse. And uh, I was, for example, surprised how American embassy reacted very quickly to this decision and quite positively. 
I was just actually thinking about that same example and and the whole move of of the kind of far right conspiratorial U.S. discussions that had been based on Facebook that shifted to new new apps where they felt like their free speech would be more protected. And I, I think this is a I think this is a, actually a very 21st century question. You know, we have all this access to new technology which helps us communicate better with one another and be connected all over the world. But it also creates the space for just like you say, using these democratic structures against themselves. And we, you know, in 2020 and in 2021, we've really seen the negative impacts that that technology has had U.S. democracy in a really stark way. And for many of us observers in the U.S., I mean, personally, I've long been critical of how well our democracy functions. But for a lot of people, it was one of the first times they had really seen, you know, that that democracy everywhere is really fragile. And the way that people who were in power, in positions of power, were abusing technology in order to try to, to bring down that democracy it was appalling. And, you know, speaking about Ukraine's aspirations toward Western democracies, I, I think it really challenges the idea that that any democracy is a great example for a country like Ukraine. And, and I think Ukraine is right to be a little bit cautious about how technology is being used in this way. Yeah, and democracies have to have the capacity of protecting themselves, right? But let me come back to this initial question, how Ukrainian democracy is similar or different from other types of democracy, and ask you about America, so the country you're living in, so in Ukraine, there is a popular idea, popular metaphor that there is much more, there are lots of common things between America and Ukraine, precisely with this idea, which is, you know, in American culture of this wild west, so, so the big, you know, territory which you need to colonize and this, you know, image of cowboys. Uh, individual, you know, half peasants, half uh, warriors who are colonizing this space with violence, including with violence, of course, and uh, Ukrainian uh, wild east. I mean, all this, what what we call the wild field, the Dike Pole in the east is the, uh, the beginning of the big Eurasian steppes, which is very important for Ukrainian identity because the very idea of Ukraine as a big frontier, as a big borderland, uh, is is very important for the constituting the idea of you know political Ukrainian political culture and we can mention this image of Cossacks of the colonizers and of warriors and peasants at the same time it's a great idea that is expressed by Serhii Plohi for example the director of Harvard University uh, um, Ukrainian Studies Institute so what do you think is this parallel interesting can we develop it can we think about it this is it is an interesting question. It's not really one I've thought about before. And I think it's really important when thinking about the U.S. kind of Wild West attitude. You know, you, you mentioned that, that a lot of this is, is built on, a, you know, the use of violence to spread American ideals. I mean, the United States was inhabited in when when the colonizers first came and the colonizers forcibly pushed out indigenous populations and killed most of the indigenous populations forcibly displaced indigenous populations in order to build the structures that they wanted and then excluded those same populations from from representation in those structures that were so-called democratic from the time that they were founded and so you know the US in many ways is built on 
exclusionary tactics in, in, in democracy building, which was enacted and sanctioned by the U.S. government as the country spread toward the West. And so in that way, I, I'm hesitant to kind of advocate for any kind of comparative comparative example for Ukraine simply because, you know, the U.S. I think is, is now starting to reckon with how long term the effects of those actions were. We're finally starting to bring this into our into our conversations and maybe correct some of those starting to create ideas of how to rectify those those decisions that were made so many years ago. I mean, it does feel to me like a kind of colonizing project. And I just I just don't really like the idea of any democracy now treating itself as a kind of colonizing entity, whether or not the land that we're talking about in Ukraine has indigenous populations on it that would, you know, receive the brunt of any any violent decisions made at the federal level. I, I mean, that's kind of a different way of thinking about it. I might be, I, I think I'm applying it too literally here, but I just don't think it's appropriate for thinking about democracy building in the in the 21st century. I think we need to be thinking more along the lines of of anti-colonial, anti-racist kinds of ideas. It's very interesting. I think it's it's a very interesting also a perspective how we can look at Ukraine also using these metaphors and comparing with with other countries. Let me ask a question about democracy, you know, as an intrinsic uh, feature of Ukrainian political culture, because it is also something that is quite a popular idea that, look, you know, we are not Russians because we are intrinsically democratic and we have this, you know, tradition of Cossack democracy or medieval democracy, which I think is also kind of an anachronism, you know, because, well, it's very difficult to talk about democracy in the 17th century, probably at some uh, idea of political freedom and probably some idea of a republic, something like that. But of course, there were lots of excluded categories of the population. But generally speaking, do you think that we can talk about intrinsic features of Ukrainian political culture as kind of, you know, this aspiration for individual freedoms or for for freedom of a given community? What do you think? Well, I'm trained in, in sociocultural anthropology and most sociocultural anthropologists try to stay away from making any kind of grand claims about a people that they're intrinsically one thing or another. And and so I would stick to that. I I would not necessarily say that Ukrainians as a as a people are more committed to a certain idea than Russians as a people. Such such things aren't aren't genetic. They don't really exist like that. They're, you know, we have to think about the the context both politically, economically culturally and socially that are built up and how how people commit to certain ideas over other ideas. And we know in Ukraine, there are many examples, like you say, of structures of governance that look like a modern day democracy. But the modern world isn't isn't the same as that. And I'm thinking here also of of um research that that has been done over time on on Western Ukrainian democratic governance structures that were, you know, sort of famously included women and, and incorporated many, you know, people who were in other countries and other places excluded from democratic practice. Ukraine does have a really fascinating history of inclusion in terms of civic participation, in terms of the the political participation these are great examples, and I do think that modern Ukraine should draw from these historical examples. But when we start to talk about any place as inherently or intrinsically one thing or another, you know, we start to to run into the possibility that something else can happen simply, you know, because we made too much of an assumption. And what I mean by that is we stop believing that we have to actively protect a democracy if we believe that we're inherently democratic. And that's something that I do think happened in the United States. We've been a democracy for so long, and so many people thought, well, this 
will never change. And then all of a sudden, you know, we start to have hints of authoritarian takeovers. And so it's really important to, to remember that democracy is a practice, that people have to commit to the idea, that government representatives also have to commit to that idea. And it's active decision making that makes a place continue to be democratic. And it's those decisions, and this is equally as honorable as being inherently democratic, continually making decisions to stay a democracy is what makes Ukraine a democracy. And that I think is even more interesting. Why do people keep making this decision, even though it, it might not be the easy one? It's admirable and it's it should be supported by by every ally that Ukraine has. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in a, with an idea that everything is reversible and there is nothing irreversible in history. So achievements that one gets, a nation, a community can be reversed and unless there is a continuous effort to you know, sustain these uh, achievements. Maybe my last question, when you look from United States, from other countries of the world, at Ukraine and at Eastern Europe in general, what do you think an outsider, not you in particular, but an outsider, what can understand better than people living in this region? Or what can an outsider understand worse? This is a good question. I think I think an, an outsider might be able to understand a little bit better. I, I think I was thinking just now that um, you know so much of the conversation among people who study Ukraine is focused on minutia and details and whether or not you know the sanctioning of Kozak and Medvedchuk's channels is the right move right now. We have no idea. There's a much bigger picture. And sometimes I think it takes an outside view to, to kind of contextualize and say, okay, Ukraine is on this long path toward democracy. Maybe some of these decisions are helpful. Maybe not. We really can't know right now. Um, and, I, and I do think that's important because we have to not get stuck in making sure that every little detail is correct, right? We have to see this as a, a kind of greater path. Um, and democracies that have been around for a lot longer might have that perspective a little bit better for Ukraine. But at the same time, I think in terms of understanding, you know, helping outsiders understand Ukraine, I, I do think the distinction of Ukraine's choices essential to understand how hard Ukrainians have worked for their democracy, how committed they are to securing it, how important it is to develop a civic democracy that represents all the people living in Ukraine. These are things that I don't think Ukraine gets commended for enough because it's always being assessed about, you know, corruption and whether or not reforms are working and and all these things that are really challenging. So we have to keep in mind, I think outsiders should keep in mind when they're assessing Ukraine, you know, that the commitment is at an essential level and it's it's really important that Ukraine is making those decisions at all because if not it would become an authoritarian regime it would go you know actively be part of the Russian attempt to build a new empire and it's only Ukrainian decision making that is keeping it from doing that and that's really important for for people who are assessing Ukrainian democracy to remember thanks so much Emily it was very interesting conversation uh, let me remind that my guest today was Emily Channel Justice who is director of Timothy Contemporary Ukraine program at Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. Harvard University is famous for its Ukrainian Research Institute. This was a podcast of ukraineworld.org, podcast explaining Ukraine. You can subscribe to us on Facebook and Twitter and to our mailing list and stay with us and follow news from Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you so much.